0: Broadcasting live from the North Fulton Business Radio X Studio, it's time for To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. To Your Health is brought to you by Morrow Family Medicine, an award-winning primary care practice which brings the care back to health care.
1: Hello and welcome back to To Your Health. I'm so glad you chose to join us again today. This is Dr. Jim Morrow. I'm with Morrow Family Medicine. Mara Family Medicine has offices in Cumming and in Milton, Georgia. We try to utilize state-of-the-art technology along with an old-fashioned attitude to do our best to make you feel both cared for and appreciated. So when you do have a need for utilizing family medical care, we like to think that you might give us a try. We are doing our best to do the best that we can every single day. We appreciate when your choice is Mara Family Medicine. I am here once again in my office studio. We're still distancing and being careful because of the coronavirus. John is, as always, in his luxurious home studio, and he's looking like a million dollars. You can't see him, but he's wearing his two-year-old health golf shirt. That's That's right. John, how are you?
2: Great. How are you today?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited about another show.
2: Me too. This is going to be a great one.
1: So I want to remind everybody that, uh, number one, whatever app you're listening to the podcast on, if you would hit the subscribe button, that way you'll be notified whenever we have new episodes that are produced and dropped. So that's a a good way to stay up to date with our episodes. This is number 38, so we're getting up there to a small degree. Also, if you have comments or uh, show topics, or if you have just anything you want to tell us, you can reach out to us a couple of different ways. One is by email. That's at drgem, that's Jim at toyourhealth.md. Or you can tweet us. We are at toyourhealthmd. So we're on Twitter. We got email. You can listen to the show on the podcast. If you're listening live, you can go to toyourhealthradio.com and listen. So we've got it out there where you can't miss us if you're looking at all. And we appreciate the fact that you have been. I'm going to start off today. Today is August the 5th, 2020, the a year that will live in infamy. I'm quite sure, and I want to give you a little bit of a coronavirus update. I haven't done one in the last couple of episodes. Uh, For some reason, in the last well, I know the reason, but in the last two weeks, hydroxychloroquine has been all over. You you can't call it news anymore because it's all editorialized. But that product and social media as well because people are coming out and saying i treated people with hydroxychloroquine and they survived but well, we have also not treated people with anything whatsoever and they've survived but the the bottom line on hydroxychloroquine is in and that is that it is out hydroxychloroquine does not work for covid-19 period you can take that to the bank You can tell those friends of yours on social media who continue to tell you that they want to try it, that they're wrong, and you can look it up at the NIH website. You can look it up in the New England Journal of Medicine. You can look up a million different places. The real studies show hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. Please quit sending me messages on Facebook Messenger with a 25-minute video about somebody that treated eight people and they survived. That's not science, and I like to go by science. What is in seems to be steroids. It looks like steroids are really helping typically in the second week of illness. And we're talking about hospitalized people for the most part. But it looks like steroids are making a difference. And there's a lot of scientific reasons for that. But it makes sense when you look at the science. And it makes makes you happy when you look at the results. Also, there's a drug called tocilizumab which is an interleukin inhibitor. It's an inflammatory marker inhibitor. And given at the right time, it looks like that's doing some good. So a lot lot more studies to be done on that, but some progress being made and people are seeming to do better. On masks, the bottom line on masks is as simple as it is on hydroxychloroquine. They do help. They make a huge difference. We started off thinking that really masks were good for you not to get someone else sick, but there's increasing information that masks also help keep you from getting sick. And don't talk to me about the size of the virus and it being one micron and the mask letting anything smaller than five through the virus is riding on a droplet. You have to stop the droplet. That's all you have to stop. The virus falls with the droplet. So long as someone is not taking your mask and breathing the inside of your mask, you're going to be fine. So masks are important. If you have two people in a room and they're distanced at all and they're both wearing masks, the chance of transmission is turning out to be very, very, very slim. We are seeing some long-term complications with people with COVID-19. We're seeing some, some memory fog, if you will, some heart complications, needless to say some lung complications, things that The flu, which is always referred to incorrectly, just does not cause. Influenza doesn't cause these things. Uh, I personally have a patient who ended up with a pacemaker because he had 13 second pauses in his heartbeat that he never had before he had COVID, and then he had them. So you have to think there's a relationship there. It causes other heart issues, too. And he ended up with a pacemaker almost against his will because he felt like I'm a healthy person at 52 or three, and he ended up with a pacemaker because 13-second pauses are incompatible with doing much of anything. you look at the data, you'll see that in the neighborhood, I think yesterday, it was 1,400 people died across the country from COVID-19. That's a person a minute. So while I've been talking to you, probably four people have died from COVID-19. It's a big deal. Pay attention to the coronavirus. Pay attention to COVID-19. Wear a mask for crying out loud. So I want to get to the meat of what we're going to talk about today. I've sort of titled this episode Understanding Autism, which is a little bit of an oxymoron, I do believe, because I've been doing this 35 years and I certainly don't understand it. But we're lucky to have a couple of people with us today that understand it much better than I do and the, and the average person does. Autism itself is a developmental brain disorder. It affects your social, your behavioral, and your communication skills. People who have autism frequently will start showing signs, usually will, at a very early age. And the degree of autism varies from person to person. And that's why you'll hear people talk about the autism spectrum. And that is referred to as the autism spectrum disorder. uh, Because it can go from just a very minor thing to an incredibly uh, disabling thing. Uh, symptoms of autism vary Uh, some of them are common some of them more severe than others Uh, a lot of times and this is typically in children uh, but it's a lifelong condition uh, they'll avoid physical touch or eye contact they may not respond to voices or other sounds they may not respond to their name they don't talk much sometimes more than others but not a great deal They may fixate on certain topics and other things. They may be unafraid of danger and not understand uh, what can happen in an accidental uh, injury or accident case. About 20% of children who have autism develop normally for the first couple of years, and then they experience a regression of some sort, and that's, that's a fairly common thing. But then on the other hand, some children will all of a sudden develop very special skills. Uh, math, for example and that kind of thing. This is much less common, but it, it can happen and it's still part of this spectrum of disorder. Diagnosing autism is not easy. Uh, there's no lab test or anything like that. There's no scan that says this person has autism. Um, but it's something that sure there's something that comes from experience and taking time to spend time with a patient, and get to understand what's going on with them. So today we have two people from the Lionheart School in Alpharetta, Georgia. Uh, We have Victoria McBride and Elizabeth Dewan. And ladies, I really can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today.
3: We're happy to
0: be here. Thanks for having us.
1: Absolutely. So if you would take a minute and tell us, Something about your role, each of you, at the Lionheart School? And and then after that, whoever wants to can tell us what the Lionheart School is all about.
3: Um, I'm Victoria McBride, and I am the head of therapeutic services at the Lionheart School. And I also work um, closely with our adult program, the Lionheart Works Program, which is a program that started within the last five years. um, getting some of our older uh, students turning into adulthood, uh, a place to go and a mission and a purpose for their lives as years have taken our students to where after school was over, they really, their schooling ended and there really wasn't much for them to, to look forward to. So as our population aged, um, so did our mission. And so um, it's been really uh exciting to see the possibilities for some of our uh, students as they come to adulthood.
1: That's wonderful to be able to continue that and give them some continuity there because I know that's an important thing. And Elizabeth, what about yourself?
0: Um, I'm Elizabeth Doolin. I'm actually one of the co-founders as well. Um, I'm the head of the school and I handle all the admissions and I also Have the privilege of doing something called floor time, which is a play based intervention. And I have the opportunity to play with the younger children. So that I have numerous roles as we all do. Uh, But both Victoria and I spend time with the students or the young adults every day, which is a a wonderful piece of what we've been able to do in these roles. Well,
1: that's wonderful. I I have to tell you, I first learned about the Lionheart School about five years ago, four or five, when my wife Peggy was part of the Leadership North Fulton uh, experience. And their project for their group was to uh, provide a, a divided wall for the all-purpose room and some, some other things. And she got to know the people at Lionheart to a degree. And then I did, of course. And we were both just completely blown away with the work that's being done there. It's something that's just not known to enough people in the community, in my opinion. And so I'm very excited to have an opportunity for y'all to, to come on and and speak about the good works that are going on there. So one of the things you mentioned, Elizabeth, was floor time. And I did a little bit of research uh, looking into what that is and how that works. Tell our, our listeners, if you would, how that works and what that amounts to and how it benefits these kids.
0: Okay, uh, floor time. Actually, if you think of an overarching uh, umbrella, there's a, the model that we follow. It's called DIR. stands for Developmental, Individual Differences, and Relationship Based. And we can talk about that a little bit more in the in a minute if you want to. But floor time is a play-based intervention that came out of a clinical model that was actually designed for parents to be in relationship in a playful and joyful way where the parents are following the child's lead. So they're actually building on the child's strengths and getting to know them, understanding their individual differences and understanding where they are developmentally. Um, and then the deeper the relationships, the better they know their children. Uh, it is designed to be to move children kind of through uh, the developmental prog- pro- process, but through play.
1: Well, that's wonderful. I, that's I can imagine that would be a much easier way to go about this than some of the things that have been tried in the past, but you mentioned DIR and let, let's go ahead and talk about what that is and how it relates to this.
0: Okay. Um, This is for us, it informs everything that we do. It's, it came out of the work of Stanley Greenspan and Dr. Stanley Greenspan, who's now deceased, but um, also Serena Weider. And they were the brains behind this. They were um, working with families in a clinical model, as I said, and they found that if you look at individuals, where they are developmentally, um, what their individual differences are, how they process information, how they take in information, their motor system, visual system, so on and so forth. Uh, And then if you have a deep relationship or can deepen your relationship, you can then Understand what I said. You can understand their developmental levels, and you.
3: That
0: individual is taking in information from the world. So again, Stanley Greenspan and Serena Weider were the brains behind it. And we took that amazing way of working with individuals and uh, brought it into a school program.
3: And um, we feel that this is a really important way of working with children, because one of the characteristics of of the autism spectrum is that children are rather self-involved and not, I'm sorry, not self-involved, um, self-absorbed, and have trouble um, relating to the world around them. And so we feel it's so important to really um, delve into the eye piece, the individual piece, because each child with autism is exactly that, one child with autism. It's like a fingerprint. And they all have individual profiles um, that can be similar or very different from each other. So it's really important that as you work with these children, you look closely at their ability to process the world around them. And so how do they visually see the world? How do they auditorily see the world? And so it's really important to spend a lot of time getting to know each child individually. Just to piggyback on what Victoria said,
0: um, we, we talk about this, the diagnosis really it it doesn't inform who that individual is. They're unique and extraordinary. They're as individual as the four of us on this um, podcast. And that's how we like to consider students as who are they as a unique individual.
1: And what ages does Lionheart typically serve?
0: Well, um, in the school program, we serve uh, students, for turning five through 21 or a SACS-accredited school, special purpose school. And then in the young adult program, they can be served 18 into 18, young adulthood into adulthood. Um, So 18 and over in the um, works program.
1: And how many uh, students do you typically have in a particular year at Lionheart?
0: Well, we serve them, uh, it's a two to one student staff ratio and we're in our, we're about to start our 21st year and we've, we've usually, we, we can range from, you know, 40 to 50 students, uh, we never really want to be bigger than 50 students because we want, have always wanted to maintain that student teacher ratio. Uh, we love getting to know the students. As I said, the relationship piece is a critical part of what we do. Uh, so we are, we are a small school and always going to be a small school in works. Victoria can speak to that, but quite similar.
3: And in the works program, we see between 20 and 25 young adults. And um, it's a you know a smattering of uh, work within the what they call the training center, which is um, at a Lionheart Works site, and then also they have job coaches that go on site with them to their specific jobs.
1: And how in the Works program how have you managed to line up jobs for these kids?
3: That's a great question. Um, Well, you know, we all, we love our relationships. So um, what we do is as the students, as the students age and become young adults, we're really, if the the student that is in the works program is at the school, we start early on when they're very young and we start to see areas in which they really are, have affinities and they have real strengths in and also real interest in. And we start thinking about that and we start placing them in positions that are in their interests. So we have a wide variety of where we place them. We have a lot of our students enjoy uh, animals. And so we have animal care placements. We have a lot of students that gravitate toward technology. So we uh, find positions that are technology related. Um you know, based on their interests and their affinities is where we place them. And we, some some placements go in large groups, but we don't, we do individual placements. And once we secure a placement and the community has been so incredibly welcoming for us, as we go out, if there's a student that has a particular interest in animals, you know, we may go to a vet and they may say, sure, you know, we'll come and we'll, you know, bring them and, they'll go with the job coach. And um, so it's been really beautiful to see because we have most of our students placed in a position that they strive in. So it's not as difficult for them.
1: And going back to the beginning of their experience at Lionheart, Uh, I love the fact that you're able to watch and learn what they're good at and what they like. And I can certainly see the benefit there when you get into the WORKS program. But when they first approach Lionheart, what's that admission process like?
0: Um, Actually, and I I do have the opportunity to meet all the families that come uh, for admission. Typically, just out of what a developmental approach is maybe different than another coach then we ask the fans to come in they too meet the students um I always say that the students are the best part of who we are and I love for anyone who's visiting to get to meet our students uh and then if a family leaves and they think which we love, this is the perfect place for my child, or I'd love to have my child at Lionheart. Then we ask them to apply and we invite them back in for a visit. And typically Victoria and I spend time with them. We spend time with them in the the floor time room where all the toys are, or the OT room where there are trampolines and swings and, you know, things to climb on. And we just spend time getting to know them. And we try to let families know immediately if we're going to be able to, you know, uh, make that admissions happen. Uh, So it's a very, it's again. It's about the relationships, and it's about kind of. I think families are the experts in who their child is. We like to be some of the spokes of that proverb, the wheel, if you will. They're the hub, or some of the spokes. So, if the families believe in what we're doing and how we're doing it, then um, it's a great place for us to start with a student.
1: Well, if you're having up close to fifty students there. I'm I'm sure you have a wide variety of of differences in uh not only ages but behaviors and such. How does that play a role? How do how do you handle all those differences there within one school?
0: So it's it's not usual that we would have 50, but we would have small classes just the same. We we do have a two to one student staff ratio a highly trained and skilled staff teacher. Uh, most of our teachers have a master's degree. Everyone has a college degree. Um, we have some assistants who have college degree might've even been a special ed teacher or a teacher. We also um, Victoria is a speech pathologist. We have two speech pathologists. We have two occupational therapists. We have a reading specialist. We We love to look at um, students from a lot of different vantage points. So the parents and all these professionals that I just described, uh, when you, again, when you're looking at students as individuals and then you're grouping them in small groups with a highly skilled staff, and then you have parents as a part of that, it really is a recipe for success. I will say, oh, go ahead, Victoria. Did you want to say? Go ahead. Go ahead. If, um, since you mentioned the question, the behaviors, if you will, I'll just mention this because this is one of my um, my soapboxes. We, and I will speak for myself, but I can speak for Lionheart. We do see there, there are great behaviors and then there are behaviors that are considered problematic. But in for the most part, behaviors have a function they somehow serve the individual so if you are in a situation in a classroom any classroom in a family at a restaurant doesn't matter where it is if a child has a behavior and let's just take the ones that might be considered more problematic um There's a reason for the most part that a student might be doing that thing. And what Lionheart likes to do is look at what is the underlying function or what is that behavior communicating to us? And then how can we dig in and support the student so that they can find a better way to communicate that? underlying thing, so that it's not problematic. And that's a really important part of what we do. And what happens is, we support the students in the beginning, to be able to figure all that out with the families. Ultimately, you end up with young adults that are able to say, I'm struggling because, or I feel like this, or and it, so we're not um, excusing them, we're supporting them so they can ultimately be more independent around things in the world that might cause them to have problems. And then there's a behavior that doesn't work
3: so well for them. And uh, that's why it's so important for us to really dig in on that eye piece, the individual piece, because just for a perfect example, we had a child in a classroom that was screaming and, and, You know, we had no idea why he was screaming. When we looked at that eyepiece, it ended up being that he was extremely auditorily sensitive. And when the the classroom got noisy or if there was a noise or a sound that was getting in the way, he would scream. So once we were able to identify that, we were able to figure out what to do for him, give him some earphones, you know, take him away from that noise. The behavior went away there was no, you know, candy at the other end of it. It was just that we intervened based on his individual profile.
1: I think that's wonderful the way you're able to to manage all these different types and what you're doing for these kids. Like I said, my well, my wife and I have seen what what a difference is making. And you mentioned Elizabeth, you mentioned all the different people, the different departments and that kind of thing. And I want to, I just want to give a shout out to the art people there because if you come into my coming office of Mara Family Medicine, right at, right there in the waiting room is a five-foot square painting that your kids did years ago that we were able to obtain through the silent auction at the gala, uh, which we went to this one particular year, and it is one of the most wonderful things that we have. And so we're tickled to have that, that that's a part of the Lionheart School. I hope that after listening to this, people will be much more interested in not only learning about autism, but learning about the Lionheart school. I want to tell everybody that the web address for the Lionheart school is www.thelionheartschool.com. And uh, I would encourage, like you said, Elizabeth, for people to go there and to learn more about the school and about autism and so forth. I think that's a, a wonderful thing that people could do. And I hope that they will. I really appreciate y'all being with us today, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to say anything else that we might have left out about the school or about your feelings about this condition.
0: Well, I I just I again I want to reiterate what Victoria said um, for a couple reasons, but. The community of support we've had has been extraordinary. We're about to start our 21st year. We started in the, the little teeny tiny cottage that is on the um, at Alfreda Presbyterian Church. There were six students. I was the only full time person. We've grown into something that is um it's a model program that for not only our students but also young adults and we we really couldn't be where we are today if we hadn't had the community of support the other thing is that so much of what informs what i know about autism is that individuals with autism who have shared things with us their families um, other professionals across the nation. And I feel like I just am so grateful for that because they help me to be better and to be then better able to support the students that I get to work with. So and that's a big shout
3: out, a big, great, big, thank you.
1: Absolutely. And back I on love that. that.
3: Piggyback to just extremely grateful for all the uh, support we've gotten from the families, the community. I mean, it, they are making such a difference in the lives of these children and young adults. I mean, they they just have purpose, and it they've come, We've come a long way with the autism spectrum, and now we know that they have so many gifts to give, and you know they're they can continue to. Give and be wonderful people even into adulthood.
1: Well said. Well, John, I think that's what we have on the Lionheart School and autism. Do you have any questions there?
2: Yeah. I, uh, one question uh, from here is about um, maybe the biggest misconception that you have to dispel about autism.
0: Oh, the biggest misconception. Um,
3: Well, they're, I have one that they don't want to be social, that they don't want to be social. They do want to be social. They need to learn how, and they need to have people understand them better. So they're better able to be social. And I,
0: I'll add to that too. uh, Our kids are capable of being extraordinarily kind and empathetic and, warm, relating, communicating individuals. And I think sometimes people don't see that or that the possibility of that is there, but we see it every day. So again, it kind of goes hand in hand to what Victoria is saying, but, uh, our students for the most part, they would, if they could. Uh, and a lot of times the environment is making, um, the ability to relate, communicate, be in it with others can make that very difficult.
2: One other question relates to uh, the school reopening. And it, uh, obviously, every school district has a different policy, different way of doing that. What's what's happening at Lionheart as you uh, reopen the, uh, open the school year for this year?
0: We are reopening. The teachers are headed back on Monday, the 10th. And the students are coming back the following Monday. Uh, Actually, the young adults have been working all summer. And we have lots of, uh, and I'll go back to what Dr. Morrow said, we have lots of protocols in place that are based on science Uh, We are going to be masked. There's a lot of uh, hand-washing and distancing, uh, social distancing, or I like to say physically distant because I don't want them to be socially distant, Um, but we are following, we have a lot of um, science-based protocols in place. We are a relationship-based model and Zooming isn't the same. Uh, we are going to do everything we can to keep our students safe. The families are really excited that the students are going to be back in the building. Uh, so yeah, we're reopening. We're, we're going to be here next week.
2: Awesome. Uh, Dr. Morrow, one quick question for you. Um, It's, it's come to our attention that you are peddling the theory that a Ford F-150 keeps you from getting the coronavirus. Is that true?
1: That is out there on social media. Yes. Uh, In a reaction to, thank you so much, John. I love you. Uh, In a reaction to everybody continuing to say that hydroxychloroquine was going to cure or prevent COVID-19 in the face of absolutely no science. I did make a video Saying that I drive a Ford F one hundred and fifty, I have for years. I've never had COVID nineteen, so you need to get a Ford F one (laughs) hundred and fifty. And it's the only thing I've ever done that had almost four thousand views and (laughs) I think thirty shares. And I'm sure that's quite short of going viral, uh, but at at least it went bacterial. I'm quite sure. (laughs) So um yes John I do believe that if more people drive a Ford F150 there'll be less COVID-19 in the world.
2: And uh, just a shout out to d Ford. And I buy my
1: Ford F150s at Chastity Ford in Dahlonega, Georgia and you should get yours there too. That's exactly right.
2: I love it. Thanks for <laughs> that.
1: Well thank you and ladies once one more time thank you so much for taking this time. Uh it's, it's a, a brief podcast, but I think we filled it with information about Lionheart and what a difference you can make and what a difference you are making. And once again, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Absolutely. And John, for now, that's to your help.